The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Logan, thank you. It's on Cool Springs Boulevard. It's on Cool Springs Boulevard. It's, it's, I think. Our scripture reading today is from Galatians 1, 18 through 24. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Logan. So as I was preparing this sermon... I have a routine of sorts when I, when I do sermon work. I, I write most of my sermons in Starbucks. Uh, for whatever reason, the white noise, the semi-reliable Wi-Fi, it, it all comes together. And I, I, have a, I have a template that I use for a sermon outline so I know kind of when I'm done. I know what a 25 to 30 minute sermon looks like on paper. So I'm sitting at a Starbucks uh, a couple weeks ago and I'm working on this passage and there's, some, there's a, a huge cultural moment that was happening right around that time. And I thought, I'm not going to touch it. I'm just not going to touch it. A bunch of guys like me are trying to touch it. We don't really know how to touch it. We're tripping all over ourselves, it's, so I'm not going to. And then I read this passage, and I felt like the Lord was kind of putting his finger in my sternum and saying, it would be prideful disobedience for you not to touch it. So let's talk about Kanye West. (laughs) A few weeks ago, he releases an album that is entitled Jesus is King. And it is on its face a record about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving power of Jesus Christ. And on its release, the internet lost its ever-loving mind because it was it's a gospel record. And within days, what happened is, so I'm convinced that whatever you're into is what your social media feed looks like, and everybody's social media feeds look a little different. I'm into, you know, whatever I'm into, all of a sudden, I started seeing lots of think pieces come up, um, written by uh, theologically-minded people or pastoral types um, responding to what, what appears to be Kanye West's conversion. And there was a variety of responses. So some think we're writing that this is a thinly veiled attempt at fleecing Christians of their money. Uh, some think that Kanye is just a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, some think uh, Kanye has an addictive personality and he moves from one addiction to another and at the moment he's just addicted to religion and he's really into it but that it's going to pass like the others. But many believe that based on his lyrics, based on his testimony, based on his disposition, that his conversion is the real deal. And that's where my hope is, 
uh, there as well. But I will say this. It strikes me as I'm reading all these articles and thinking about it and even mentioning it here in the sermon that there's an element of this talk where at its core it's just gossip. Gossiping about Kanye West. Because the truth is, it's really none of our business, right? Like, it's none of our business, ultimately. But I'm the sort who is generally suspicious when the largely white evangelical world that I'm a part of uh, starts writing think pieces about hip-hop culture. Um, (laughs) And that's why I wasn't going to touch the story, because I felt like it's going to be just completely disingenuous. If I stand up here and start reciting to you Kanye West lyrics, you're going to know that somebody just Googled Kanye West. But then I studied the passage that we're looking at. It's, it's just a perfect story uh, for today because in, it's perfect in this way. When a celebrity like Kanye, who is known for fame and fortune, claims to abandon a life that was lived for the sake of the worship of self and instead is embracing a life of obedience to Christ, how should other Christians respond? How should we respond? When a zealot like Saul of Tarsus, known for his fierce commitment to extinguishing Christianity, professes to have become a believer with a call to advance the gospel throughout the Gentile world, how should the church respond? What should the response be? Of course, we'll say things like, well, I mean, we want to see fruit of the Spirit, right? We want, to, we want to notice spiritual maturity and humility happening, yet we're listening for orthodoxy, we're listening for commitment to biblical truth, but here's what we cannot say. We cannot say, not him, not her, that's impossible. You just can't say that. You can't say that. We need to remember what Paul is doing here in this opening chapter of Galatians. So we're, we're still in chapter one of Galatians, and Paul is setting up this letter. He comes out of the gate strong, right? Saying, if anybody comes to you preaching another gospel than the one I proclaim to you, even if I circle back and preach different gospel than the one, let him be accursed. And then he starts talking about these false teachers who have been there and who have been proclaiming a different gospel. And what Paul is doing here in this first chapter of Galatians is he's preparing to respond very theologically to these false teachers. And what he's doing is he's establishing his credibility as somebody who has the authority of an apostle. And this involves then giving the testimony of his conversion and the response and and what happened after his conversion, which includes a three-year season of learning from Christ himself. And so today's passage speaks to the question of orthodoxy. Paul is establishing this question. Is he teaching the one true pure gospel of Jesus Christ or is he teaching something else? And so I want us to follow the train of thought and then make some application. After three years, so Paul is converted on the road to Damascus. He ends up going to Arabia. He spends three years there learning from Christ himself. So much mystery shrouded right over that statement, but that's what he does. After those three years of learning from Christ, Paul goes up to Jerusalem, and he goes there to visit with Peter, who is, think of Peter as the lead apostle, 
Um, that category wasn't established, but think of him. He was one of the big three, right? And, and, and he certainly becomes the one who, in the, in the New Testament early church, he's the guy who's, who's out in front uh, leading and building the church among the Jewish people. And Paul goes and he visits with Peter, and he stays with him for just over two weeks, a fortnight. And during that time, he also meets James, not James of Peter, James, and John, but James, the brother of Jesus and the author of the book of James in the New Testament. What's important about James, or just noteworthy, I think, about James, is James was not a believer during the earthly ministry of Jesus. He didn't believe it. He, he became a believer after the resurrection. But Paul spent time with Peter and with James. And during this visit, Peter and Paul compared notes. Though Paul did not receive his gospel from Peter or the apostles, what he did receive from Christ himself was the same gospel that Peter and the apostles had received. It's the same Jesus, the same source, the same grace. And had they been out of accord with each other, this would have been the moment where that would have been on display, that would have been made known. But what follows would not have happened if they were out of accord with each other. What, what happens? Well, after he stays with Peter for about 15 days, he goes on to Syria and Cilicia, and he's still really unknown to the churches except he has a reputation. And he has this reputation of being the converted persecutor. The only intel that people have about him is that Paul is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy in a way that's pretty ironic because the thing that had him so distressed about the concept of Christianity was that any Jewish person would look at a Gentile and say, the same grace extends to you that extends to me. And that was just a non-starter. And now he's become the apostle to the Gentiles. It's an amazing transformation. So imagine navigating this, right? How do you navigate this? You've got this reputation where you've gone from one extreme to another. Imagine how hard that must have been for people to accept, to trust. What if this conversion was all just part of a ruse to get deeper into where you could persecute even more effectively? And so you're just infiltrating. Though we know that people did doubt Paul and that Paul had to explain himself, what we see in this passage is instructive. Here what we see is that the report is that when the church has heard his story, their response was to praise God because of him. And that's what I want us to unpack a little bit. Why are they praising God because of Paul? Because if you're in this room and you have something in your life, a person that you love, a struggle that you're going through, and you just feel like a good outcome here is about as impossible as Kanye West becoming a Christian, or Saul of Tarsus becoming the apostle to the Gentiles, there's something we learn about the gospel itself here that should encourage us and that should calm us. So Paul is a curiosity to these converts. He's a curi- Here's why. He's a curiosity because his roots cannot be traced back to the evangelistic efforts of another person. 
You can't trace Paul's spiritual roots back to Peter or Philip or James or John or anybody preaching Christ and him hearing the gospel. Paul comes out of nowhere. He's, a, he's an indie artist. And this adds a new level of intrigue to the gospel itself because what we're seeing here is if the gospel has the power to save people by the work of Christ alone, then the gospel and the power of the gospel doesn't depend at all on the work of others. God can do what God will do and he doesn't need anyone. And so when it comes to conversion, it means there is no probationary period. There is no trial run. The full deposit of the gospel is made up front. And so Paul emerges on the scene as as a man whose life had been transformed by Jesus himself while he was in the act of trying to extinguish the church. And Christ and Paul's, Paul's conversion proves the truth of the power of the gospel. That's what Peter found and verified when Paul visited, that this guy is legit. He's real. It's really amazing, isn't it? Because... In the world of, 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 of cults and false religions that flare up, there's this dynamic personality that's at the heart of it and is making converts and disciples and training them to be like him. And in this case, Paul just, he's this outlier and he comes out of nowhere and yet at the same time he has the same gospel as the one that Peter and the apostles were preaching So remember the false teachers, they're accusing Paul and what they're claiming is that they actually carry the true gospel. They actually carry the true teaching of the apostles, which involve requiring Gentile converts to observe certain Jewish rites like circumcision in order to be saved. If you want to be a Christian, you need to become a Jew in order to do that. And what Paul is proving is no, that's not how it works. Paul lays out the timeline of his conversion and he does it to make two points. The first is this. He's saying that the gospel he proclaimed came from a higher authority than man. Even the apostles. It came directly from Jesus. And so it's this indie artist idea, right? Like concerning the apostles, N.T. Wright said, Paul, quote, wasn't their disciple. They hadn't commissioned him to be a sub-apostle under their leadership. He was independent, end quote. The second thing that he's saying is he's saying that though he's independent, the gospel he and the apostles preach is the same one, meaning that the gospel that the false teachers are preaching, claiming it's the apostles' gospel, is not. Because he and, the gospel, he and the apostles are in step. Do you see, is this, you following me on this? He's deconstructing the credibility of the false teachers by saying, you're claiming to be proclaiming the gospel of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, and I'm telling you, you're not. And so what he does is, 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 he, is he says, the apostles and I, were in lockstep, even though we receive the gospel differently from each other. The orthodoxy lines up. The Jesus Paul knew was the same Jesus Peter knew. And the inclusion of the Gentiles 
was right. I want to stop here for a moment and talk about something that is happening in the text that still happens today. Because if talking about Kanye wasn't enough, I thought it would be cool if we also talked about politics. (laughs) False teachers. What are they doing? They're co-opting the apostles into their false teaching and they're saying, the apostles agree with us. And they're co-opting their authority and then Jesus' authority by extension by claiming they're all in step. They're saying, listen to us because we are telling you what Jesus himself values. So let's talk about politics for a minute. Red, blue, let's talk about both of them. We're in an election season. Politicians and voting blocs do this all the time. And that is co-opt Jesus as though they're the ones that are on Jesus' side. Or even more brazenly, as though Jesus is on their side. And this strategy is employed to woo woo voters and vilify the opposition, and we do it on both sides of the aisle. And my appeal to us is, may we not co-opt Jesus into something that is beneath the gospel of Jesus Christ for the sake of vilifying the opposition and aspiring to claim and win power. I pray that we wouldn't be taken in by this because the gospel stands to confront us all on our need for a savior and our savior is one who has not been and never will be one who is elected by the people. He will be rejected instead by the people. And it's not only politicians who say that unless people vote for them, the world will be doomed by the agendas of the opposition. It's also partisan supporters too, right? It's, it's co-opting Jesus through our social media feeds and all this, that, that the other side is, is, is complete lunacy and, 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 on the, uh, and opposing God, and we're the ones where, where God is rooting for us. Listen, it's, imp- it's important for us to participate in the political process. It's one of the great gifts and freedoms that we have as Americans, as people who live in a free country. And so I think it's vital that part of our being Christian in public is that we engage with issues that are on the ballot, things that involve serving our neighbors. And we serve our neighbors by learning about issues and by voting our conscience before God. But if you vilify entire groups of people because they vote differently, or give a unilateral, here's another one, or if you give a unilateral pass to others because they share your party affiliation, this isn't the way of Jesus. Truth without love is just noise, Paul told the Corinthians. And so I'm appealing for us, especially as we go into this season where every other commercial on TV and every other ad that pops up on a social media feed and every other ad on the radio is going to be some ad from a politician or somebody that's, that's being approved of by a politician. We're going into that season and there's never been a savior on Capitol Hill. And so may humility and love mark our public witness and may we revere Christ enough to not co-opt him into one of the two existing political parties and say this is his and the other one's not. Paul isn't being partisan here. He's claiming that his vision of the gospel, 
yeah, he's not being partisan claiming that his version of the gospel is the superior one. What he's doing is he's saying the gospel he proclaimed is the only one. It's Christ's gospel. And even if he should come along preaching a different one, he should be condemned. Remember, that's what he said in the opening verses of this letter. So Paul, and I think this is important for us to understand, Paul in this letter is not arguing for loyalty to himself. He wants loyalty to Christ. What does that loyalty look like? It looks like embracing the gospel and a gospel that welcomes in every tribe, tongue, and nation from every culture and every tradition. And the false teachers were incredulous at the notion that the gospel could extend to people who didn't live as they did or follow the traditions of the people. And so they co-opted the apostles as though they all shared a point of view and Paul is dismantling that. So let's look at this response here as a way of concluding. I want to look at how the church responded to Paul's conversion. They glorified God because of him. That the God they worshipped was capable of such renovation of the heart boosted their hope and it moved them to worship. To what extent do you believe right now that God is capable of a comprehensive sweeping sweeping renovation of the heart? Imagine them, right? They're, They're new believers. They have loved ones who haven't heard the gospel yet. They're thinking... If I invite these people that I love into this faith, into this gospel of Jesus Christ, is part of the thing that I have to tell them that they have to keep kosher now or that they have to get circumcised now? And how do you even have that conversation with people? They're all new believers. They, they, they have loved ones who haven't believed, they haven't heard. People that they think, I don't even know that this person would ever believe. And yet what they're hearing is how God has authored in an unassisted way, this unlikely, seemingly impossible conversion. And if God could do that, then he could draw anyone to himself, with or without human effort. They didn't grumble that God would save someone as awful as Saul of Tarsus. Instead, what they did is they marveled. They said, look at what God has done. Look at what he's done. If he could do this for Paul, he could do this for anybody. What was the source of their joy? It it, it wasn't primarily that God added Paul to their number. It was that God was able to call call a, a man like Paul to himself and did just that. It wasn't the pedigree of Paul that they were happy to gain. It was the evidence of the power of Christ at work in the world that they were happy to gain. That, oh, Jesus is on the move. And so because of Paul's conversion, they praise God. Look, you may have people in your life that you've been bringing to the Lord for years. And you may be thinking, I just don't know if the Lord has a plan here or if his silence I should just take as his answer. 
And you don't know if this person that you love could ever change. And they may seem so devoted to opposing what you hold so dear. God is able to redeem. God is able to save. God is able to heal. You may look at your own life and wonder if you could ever be freed from that particular sin that you think I should have victory over this by now. Or be released from the push and pull of a mind that swings from one emotional pull to another. Or overcome this nagging battle with doubt that's kind of always just been there. And you may wonder, how far does the grace of God extend to somebody like me? God is able to redeem. He's able to save. He's able to hold on to you when you have no strength to hold on to him. When you hear the story of Paul's conversion, praise God for it. Not for Paul, but for God's saving power. And when you hear about a celebrity's conversion, pray for them. Have your questions and your doubt if you have to. But don't doubt God's ability to do his redeeming work. Because it is every bit as much a wonder of grace that he saved you as it is that he saved anybody else. But he has. And he does. And he will continue to the glory of his name. So don't doubt his power. Don't lose hope. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that when we read passages of scripture like this, we're reminded that the gospel has fight. That Christianity is not a uh, toothless faith where we just take our lumps and in the end we get to go to heaven and be with you, but, but that you, 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 you contend for the truth of the power and the grace that is ours because of the work of Christ. I thank you for the strength that we see coming through Paul and Peter and others as they preach James where they're fighting for us to not embrace another gospel, one where we're saved by what we do. And to not embrace a weak gospel where we would say there's only so much God can do but he can't do this. But that instead we would understand that even our own salvation is a miracle of grace. And it is a real thing. And so Lord, continue to deepen our faith in you. Continue to expand our gracious, welcoming spirit toward others. Help us to not be cynical people, even if it means being wrong sometimes. May we not live in cynicism, but may we live in the hope of knowing that your gospel reaches. It reaches beyond what we could ask for or know. I'm thankful for your mercy and grace, Lord. I'm thankful for this church, this congregation. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.